morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Inside the Writer Studio is back after a little holiday break, and we have a great lineup of writers coming in 2019. My guest today is New York Times bestselling author Roshni Choksi, whose new YA novel, The Gilded Wolves, was published on January 15th and launched right here at Bookmarks. Roshni, welcome to Inside the Writer Studio. Thank you so much for having me. I'd like to start out a little bit by talking about your journey, because the more I learned about your life and your background, and the deeper I got into The Gilded Wolves, the more I thought, <laughs> No one else could possibly have written this book. <laughs> um, your father's Indian, your mother is Filipina. What was it like growing up in that mix of cultures in a place like Atlanta, Georgia? Oh my gosh, the best food ever. The best. <laughs> it was phenomenal. Um, and I, I grew up in an extraordinarily warm family, so food was always, it was the first, you know, it was like the, the nexus of our home with everything. And learning how they cooked outside of what might have been like their cultural background. You know, my mother never cooked Indian food growing up, but she learned how to do it after she married my father. Um, and there are stories in that. And there's stories um, in the imprecision of cooking. You know, mm -hmm. like when I watch my grandmother cook, it's always a handful of this and a handful of that. And I'm like, a handful? Measure your hand, you know? <laughs> yeah. What are you talking about? Um, but it's where those blurred lines uh, are that, that there's so much room for story. I read that you started writing by creating Sailor Moon fan fiction. Absolutely. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how that worked? Did you, <laughs> it, had, did it have a cultural twist to it? Or? It did. Well, in my, I, I, it was a lot of like self-insert Sailor Moon stories. So I was now a Sailor Scout, and they, all the other Sailor Scouts looked like my best friends. So we were a pretty diverse br bunch. Um, you know, Filipino, Indian, Black, Jewish, all this. Yeah. And um, for us, it was just about putting ourselves front and center in the stories that we wanted to read. When did you start writing fan fiction? How old were you? Oh my God, I think I was like 11. I think this is an amazing thing. It didn't exist when I was a child, but my yeah. I, have a, I have a child who's just finished the first draft of her first novel. Oh, that's amazing. But started out on fan fiction, you know, fan and fiction, I think it's a great way to sort it's, of it's fantastic. practice. Yeah, yeah, because like you have the arcs, you already have all the emotional buildup, so you don't have to do much and yet you can play around with all those boundaries and it's so, it's just really inspiring and it's your first taste of a writing community. Um, I don't know, I wonder if you feel this way too. Did, for me, I think when I first started feeling like a real writer um, was when I started getting feedback on my work. Exactly. You know, because yeah, um, yeah. it just rips open your soul. You're like, I put so much effort into that metaphor and somebody just ripped it to shreds, you know? Uh, and, and fan fiction sort of, is that loving community that says, oh, you might want to do this differently, but I really love where you're taking X, Y, Z. And I think it's such a great way for young writers to, to find that community. I Absolutely. mean, I, I didn't find that community until I started publishing books in hardcover, you yeah. know, and, yeah. and getting, getting reviews. But now, uh, you know, people who are coming along in the younger generation have that opportunity to have somebody say, um, my child Jimmy said somebody responded to one of their pieces of fan fiction by saying, can I translate this into another language for this friend of mine who doesn't yep. read English? And they were just like thrilled by that. Absolutely, it's, it's so cool. It really is cool. Your previous books have earned a lot of praise and awards, and in 2018 you published the first book in Rick Riordan's new imprint. How did that come about, and what was it like working with Rick? Oh gosh, okay, so, no joke. Have you ever been to Dragon Con? 
No, but you I have children who have been to go. Dragon Con. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. You should go with your kids. Um, that would be, I'm, I'm sure they'll be like, great, cool, thanks. <laughs> but um, I was actually at Dragon Con in 2016 when I heard that Rick Riordan was looking at more stories to tell with that same sort of mythological background, but he was looking for other people of those cultural backgrounds to write it. Mm -hmm. And I swear to you, I started salivating at the mouth. <laughs> I was like, no, wait, this was everything I was meant to do. Um, and I like, you know, I got home after like so much traffic because Dragon Con in Atlanta. And I immediately emailed my agent. I was like, please tell me that this is like a real thing. And she, she dug more into it and we found out that it was, it was going to be a thing. Um, and so I wrote like the first three chapters in a fugue state. It was very heavily ripped from my early Sailor Moon fan fiction, um, <laughs> completely and totally self insert. And, and also the first character I've written who was, um, so like straight from the heart, you know, she had, we were yeah. most similar character I, I think I've ever written to myself. And, um, I think there's something to be said with writing a story that is so like id driven, so yeah. wish fulfillment. Yeah. And I didn't think anything would happen with it. And then two weeks later, we, we got the news that Rick had read it and that he, he really loved it and that it was going to, to be a thing. Yeah. Um, and I was just shocked. And we got this news like, um, gosh, when was it? It was Halloween, so uh, perfect. Yeah, <laughs> me and my fiance and our friends had dressed up as the cast of Stranger Things, and I <laughs> wanted to be a Lycra like orchid monster, like the Demogorgon, but it was too difficult, and I was like, Meh, I'll make myself reasonably attractive. So I was like a Demigorgon, like a Medusa, like on, but only like on one <laughs> half. And I started crying. I was so happy. All my makeup ran, and it was just the worst. Um, and working with Rick Riordan was so cool. He is such a genuinely good human. Yeah, I mean, yeah. everything about his platform is about bolstering the stories around us, um, increasing inclusivity and not making diversity an issue, but rather just another part of the conversation. Right, right. Um, so that was the best. So let's talk about the Gilded Wolves a little bit. This is the first volume in a new YA series. Yep. What's different about the way you approach the first volume in a series as opposed to writing a standalone novel? Um, I had to do a lot more thinking in advance and I don't think I, my brain wasn't quite used to it. I was like, well, we'll get an ensemble cast and then uh, do bad things to them. But I became so close to these characters and, um, you know, between Aru and the Gilded Wolves, I think is the first time I really became a much more character driven author. And I'm, I'm really proud of that. It taught me a lot about craft and it taught me about what is it about the three book, three act structure? What am I setting up? What things am I not answering? Um, and what hints have I left, like breadcrumbs that are gonna lead to a, a much bigger um, question to answer? Right. Yeah. I just got back from New York and we went to the exhibition at the New York Historical Society about oh Harry Potter. Oh, how was it? And they have, it's, it's amazing, but wow. some of the things they have, they have like J.K. Rowling's sort of maps of, I saw of that. how yeah. all of this is going to fit yeah. together. And you understand how complicated it is to tell a story over multiple Oh my gosh. Volumes. And with that many characters and for every single one of them to be like emotionally realized yeah. is so hard. <laughs> it's, it's really amazing. The other, the other thing that was so cool about that exhibit is they had her artwork. Like she had drawn pictures of the characters wow. years before the books were ever published. Wow. Pretty good pictures. Yeah. But to see 
the the writer trying to get into the minds of the characters in as many different ways as possible, yeah. whether it was a visual way or, mm -hmm. or a, a linguistic way. I've heard of authors doing that. I could think um, Gillian Flynn, when she was writing Gone Girl, a lot of the things that she did for Ben and Amy was to actually write from the point of view of, um, of characters who would not have a POV in the books, yeah. but about how they were watching them mm, and witnessing them. Yeah. And it's so cool. It's a complex novel, but tell us a little bit about the basic setup of the Gilded Wolves. Okay, uh, it's basically national treasure with more attractive people and a colonialism <laughs> agenda. Um, so that's pretty much what it is. I mean, there's there's artifacts that need to be stolen, um, so they go do the thing. And one of my favorite things about these ensemble casts is how these people become a found family in and of themselves. So that was so rewarding to write. Um, but that is the basic gist of it. I mean, looming dark, shadowy society glamorous parties <laughs> things would you read us an excerpt from the book fine i guess i will <laughs> <laughs> took me forever to find the right thing um okay here we go tonight the pele felt like a devil's dream of heaven full of golden wolves and gleaming teeth and stars white as milk inside the palace had been redecorated for the full moon festivities Waitresses darted between tables, trailing burn of seraph wings. The obsidian floor looked like a void flecked with stars. Patrons in wolf masks sat in velvet chairs, tossing back their liquor and howling with laughter. Everywhere he looked, he was surrounded by gilded wolves. And for whatever reason, it made him feel perfectly at home. Wolves were everywhere, in politics, on thrones, in beds. They cut their teeth on history and grew fat on war. Not that Severin was complaining. It was just that, like other wolves, he wanted his share. Sometimes I ask, why did you pick the particular title that you picked? And that, I think that passage sort of yeah. answers the question. Yeah, it? it's, a, it's more of a thematic title, because um, there's been a lot of readers who are like, there's nothing about wolves in this. You know? <laughs> you know? But um, one of my favorite things, and, and I think a large part of this has to do with my, my own cultural background as Filipino and Indian, is the question of who owns your past. Yeah. Um, and the Philippines w was controlled by Spain for almost 400 years. <sighs> the India had the British there yeah, for ages. Yeah, yeah. And it was this question of what is it that people are consuming when they take over your country? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And even the word gilded felt really appropriate for the age. Um, it's set in 1889 Paris, which was called the Beautiful Era. Yeah. And it's so telling that they call it the beautiful era, the beautiful years, when it was a very gilded kind of beauty. Yeah. I mean, you have the, the Eiffel Tower being built for the first time. You have so much wonderful strides in science and music and art. And yet when you peel back the surface, you see this age of imperialism and a lot of uh, erasure happening. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. The beginning of the book, I felt, draws the reader in immediately. You have a short scene that culminates in what we suspect is a murder. We're not quite sure. And then that's followed by this document that kind of lays out the underlying premise of, of the world that you've built. In, in world building, how important do you think it is to get the rules out there right at the very beginning? I think it's extraordinarily important, but it can put off readers. I mean, I know that the first 50 pages of The Gilded Wolves is not exactly a treat. There's a <laughs> lot of stuff to get through, but it's a setup book. Yeah. And you have to, I think sometimes that some of my very favorite books uh, are a little hard to read at the beginning. They take about 100 pages for the book to teach you how it wants to be read. Right, right. Um, some of my favorites that do this are like Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell with mm -hmm. Susanna Clarke, and that book is brilliant. I put it down five times. <laughs> I could not get through it until I, I let the book teach me how to read it. 
Yeah. And that's a hard thing to tell aspiring writers because we all know that if an agent or editor doesn't get excited yeah. by your first page, yeah. then you're out of luck. I mean, that's stupid sometimes. It makes me so annoyed, but frankly, if you get their attention and say, all right, but here's how the story is really going to be told. Yeah. Um, so it's so hard to earn the initial trust of your readers, and I, I think that's why uh, I waited until now to tackle this kind of book, yeah. hoping that people trust me on the ride. I, I felt like in my in my first novel, I had to do, and I did, that thing where you grab them on the, on the first page. Yeah. But by the third novel, I felt like I could allow it to be a little more of a slow burn. Yeah, and, yeah. And so that you have this more sort of deep background yeah. that makes the stuff that happens later yeah. have some weight to it. Yeah, know? yeah. It's hard, um, but you know, at a certain point, I know this was the best book I could have written at the time and at the skill level I possessed, and mm -hmm. I'm ridiculously proud of it. Talk to us a little bit about your technique for world building. Did you have, you know, we talked about J.K. Rowling having charts on the wall. Did you have yeah. a chart on the wall or a, or a Bible that's like, this is how this world <laughs> works? Or did you sort I, of figure it out as you went along? Um, so when I'm writing, I take up pretty much every available surface in my office. <laughs> my door is covered in just these weird hieroglyphic notes to myself. Um, and it's just taped over in terms of what do I know about this? What does the reader need to know about the scene that they're in? And so it's a constant tension of what do I know? What do they know? What do the characters know? Yeah. Um, but for world building, I knew that this needed to be an alternate world um, and an alternate Paris. I still wanted to tackle the historical questions that had interested me, but I needed to figure out a way to have that sort of science magic background. Um, and I'm a huge fan of etiological tales, like Tower of Babel. I was a medievalist in college, mm -hmm. so um, being able to dig, there's so much stuff in like the Old Testament that is endlessly fascinating. Yeah. So many things where there's this interplay of context, language, um, the layering and use of the word that uh, I really wanted to play with it. And that became the source for the science magic that's in this world. The book is set, as you said, in Paris, but it's, it's this alternative version mm -hmm. of, of Paris. Mm -hmm. um, why did you choose a real city rather than just creating your entire world from, from scratch? Um, I, I Honestly, when I'm thinking about building my own worlds, I get very sleepy or I get very <laughs> hung up on the details of things that I don't end up using. I'm like, well, what would they eat? What do I want to eat? And then you know, the whole day is gone. Where I'm just like, I should bake cookies, you know, something like that. Um, so for me, the reason why I chose to set it in Paris and at that exact time um, was because it let me play with the 1889 World Fair. And right. what I really yeah. wanted to have was that tension of industry, science, and horror all yeah. at the same time. So it was, it was all built in. When I, when I think about world building, um, I immediately go to Tolkien, who started yeah. with languages. He, mm -hmm. he created his world as a place to uh, have people inhabit these artificial languages that he had written, yes. like dwarfish and elvish and things. Yeah. What, what was your original impetus? What was the thing that you said, this is the thing I want to build a world around? Oh gosh, um, I think my original impetus and my remaining impetus is um, some narcissism, really. <laughs> I was like, where do I want to be? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What world do I want to hang out in and explore? Um, and, and where do I see myself? Um, that's that's, I think, where I first started writing, to yeah. see people like me in stories. And I've had the extraordinary opportunity to, be, uh, to go to Paris a couple times, and it's a place that only gets more magical with each visit. People, I'm reading another Paris novel right now, um, and people just love 
it's, it's one of those places people love to set novels. Oh yeah. And I think there's a there's something that just draws people in. But I think Absolutely. it's also so important to to set a novel in a place that you personally are passionate about, mm -hmm. even if you don't happen to live there. Yeah. Um, tell us about your first trip to Paris. Um, gosh, my first trip to Paris, I thought it was, there was like a freak blizzard out of nowhere. Oh, I was gosh. with my parents. So that meant that, you know, my, my parents are hilarious and awesome, but they, they really travel like immigrants in the sense that <laughs> it's like, it's 5 a.m., wake up, we didn't immigrate for this, you gotta, we're, we're gonna waste daylight if we don't get moving now, and so you're clawed out of bed, and you're like, <gasps> like at a museum, you're tired as hell, everybody's wearing sneakers, none of it's glamorous, um, but it still managed to, to just completely dazzle my yeah. senses and imagination. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it was because my dad was like, we are walking everywhere. So like the snow had bled through my sneakers. I was freezing. I felt like a little match girl. <laughs> it was just the worst. But in a way it was, it was the first way to see it as a sort of grimy and cold and yet still stately and mm -hmm. the sense of wanting to go to these really luxurious establishments and not being able to that filled yeah. you with that craving sense of next time i come back here yeah. i'm gonna do this city right yeah. Yeah. um so so the next time i went back we did and it was the michelin start experience it was everything it was just like i cannot touch the pavement with my new louboutin shoes <laughs> you know and like that kind of thing um but it was but I was also traveling on a shoestring and my fiance, then my boyfriend at the time, we just blew all our money on this Paris trip yeah. because we were embarking on a graduate school for med school, law school, and we're just like, we'll never have money again. Like we might as well have the best time ever. Um, and one of the experiences that we had was we traveled to Saint Tropez in the south of France, and there's a famous nightclub there that mm -hmm. Brigitte Bardot used to to be the starlet of. And I was like, we really need to see what is inside this nightclub. I mean, like you, you're seeing it and there's this huge black door and lights and glitter and like smoke unraveling in the air. And you're just like, oh, wow, what's there? Um, and we found out for the ba bouncer that Tom Cruise and Katie Holmes couldn't get in the night before. So it wasn't boding well. <laughs> but what we did was we dressed up in all our nicest clothes. I told him to comb his beard. We use the three words in Arabic. We know we're not even from the Middle East. And we posed as Middle Eastern royalty and we got into that nice. class. Nice. It was great. <laughs> and I felt so bad because when you, I guess, I suppose when you're a princess, you're, you're very haughty to people. And I really wanted to tell these girls that I love their outfits, but I didn't. And I was very mean. I was like, oh, don't look at me. Your shadow is touching mine. I spent 180 euros on a gin and tonic. Um, you know, I didn't eat for three days, but man, that experience of feeling like you've slipped into a different skin, of being part of a glamorous, yeah. glittering yeah. world that you know at your core doesn't really want you there. But and you have the story. Yeah. I mean, sometimes yeah. when I'm traveling, I'm just like, this is the thing I need to do to have the story. Yes, you yeah, I yeah. Not, I may not have money left, or yeah. I may not enjoy this particular meal or whatever, but the story's gonna make it all worthwhile. Yes, absolutely. Um, one absolutely. of my favorite elements in, in your world that we don't have in our world, unfortunately, is forging. Oh, yeah. Um, and ooh, one ooh. character calls it this art, this connection to the ancient world, to the myth of creation itself. T tell us about forging and what that is. Oh, gosh. Um, magic systems are hard. So basically, the story goes that when the Tower of Babel fell, uh, the bricks or, or fragments of it became the source of um, a magic called forging. And what it does is essentially add animation to things. Mm -hmm. It's called like a, a sliver of God's power, not quite the ability to create life, but to 
give life to things that are already existing. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like any art, you know, some people have the talent for it, some people don't. Um, and it separates itself between mind and, and matter. Um, and if you are, if you have an affinity for mind, you can create illusions. You can do some pretty terrible things if you have hold of someone else's blood. And if you have the matter for it, um, a matter affinity, it's either solid, liquid, gas, it can be plant matter, metals, that kind of thing. And it was really interesting to me because a huge part of it is dependent on the individual artist's will. You know, right. like there has to be an answer for why, if they have this technology, they're not technologically up to speed where we are. And that's because it's also individually based. You know, you can't build a building with a, a hundred different artists. Right. Yeah. Forgers usually discover their ability about the time they turn 13. Yeah. And you're writing a novel for young adults. Mm -hmm. what, what are you saying in that to your readers about emerging identity and this being a time of life when you start to discover you know, who you really are? Yeah. Um, I guess I've always thought of it as when I hit puberty, that was the worst. And falling in love for the first time was the worst. You have, you've got no context for these emotions. You, I genuinely thought I was dying. You know, like when I saw my crush from at the end of the hallway, the horizon is tilting. I can't breathe. Everything is the worst. I want to sink into the ground. Um, and I guess having those powers at that age and, and setting these characters at an age where they're in their very, very late teens, um, early twenties, to me is about how we are constantly discovering new dimensions about ourselves. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. and that's always the allure of children's literature that we can, that we can um, end up differently than how we started out. But I hope it's something that, cause I think a lot of adults will enjoy this book as oh, well. Thank you. And um, because I think that's a conversation we ought to always be having with ourselves. Absolutely. About what is my, yeah. my real identity yeah. and, and then what do I need to, do to honor that and to, yeah. to embrace it. We don't stop becoming fully realized people when you hit 18. No. And one no. thing I wish was different about the young adult scene is how we need older characters and we need to constantly engage with not just the feeling of firsts, but the feeling of seconds, of thirds, of how we are constantly being remade by the experiences around us. Yeah, yeah. You infused a lot of your earlier works with mythology. How does mythology inform the Gilded Wolves? Uh, mythology is just the best. I love it. <laughs> um, I think for me, you know, the cool thing about mythology is it's always intended to explain the world around us. It's to explain the unexplainable. It is to, to give a face to the things that terrify us. And I love that in particular for the world of the Gilded Wolves because it is so filled with history and, and history itself is a myth. It's told by the conquerors. It's told yeah, by the people yeah. who to live to survive what happened. And I think that's where mythology really informs um, the heart of the world. I really, really wanted my readers to start questioning the information that they have, to peel back what looks gilded, to question things. And there's no easy answer when it comes to stuff like who owns the past, you know? But as citizens and as people who tell stories, I think we need to acknowledge the res the responsibility of being the cultural keepers of memory. Yeah. So. Yeah. I think it's interesting what you say about history being written by the victors. I mean, we've heard that many times, but I'm starting to see more and more novels and historical novels that are exploring mm -hmm. marginalized communities. Absolutely. And, and I've talked. I had this discussion with Rebecca Mackay about oh, the Great yeah. Believers, yeah. about how difficult that is to research because yeah. the very nature of a marginalized community is that they're not documented or certainly not right. as documented mm -hmm. as um, whether you're talking about, you know, slaves in America or 
gays in Chicago or mm -hmm. uh, you know what, whatever that community might be. And so it becomes this place where the novelist can fill in some space, I think. Yeah, yeah, and it's a, it's a weighty burden too. I mean, my mom is always getting on to me about like, where is her Filipino mythology story? <laughs> and I'm like, you know, I want to do my best, but the truth is that it's just not as well recorded. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Like when the Spanish came, they they took away everybody's last names. I, yeah. I don't know any indigenous Filipino surnames. Um, and they gave them a whole different religion and, and the meat of those stories were scooped out versus when the British came to India, they still allowed them to practice Hinduism. Yeah. Um, the British and German actually did a really great job of protecting these early translations of stuff. So there's a, it's just, Lack of the draw. Yeah, I think about the Mayan culture when the Spanish came there. It was oh, the yeah. only, I think it was the only Native American culture that had a written language. Yeah. And they had all of these books. Yeah. And now there are four. Yeah. Like in the whole world, there's four, four books left because they were considered to be heretical because they weren't Christian and so they all got burned. So. Gosh. Um, even though your world is a fictionalized version of ours, your characters deal with a lot of the same problems that, that plague the, for better, for were the real world, um, uh, like anti-Semitism, for instance, they, they mm -hmm. run into. How do you decide what real historical issues are gonna spill into your fictional world? And did you choose issues that you felt were particularly relevant today? Um, well, I, I mean, I just looked at the year that I chose and was like, what's happening, mm -hmm. yeah, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and I did make a decision early on that I did want to interrogate the diversity of these characters. Mm -hmm. um, the word diversity annoys me, but I, I think that it's something that you can't just have on the page without asking what is the context around it. So that's what, that's what I guess built some of these more internal conflicts that the characters go through. I, I also gave them a lot of my, my own struggles. One of the characters, Enrique, is white passing and of Filipino and Spanish heritage. And as someone who's a Filipino and Indian, one of the questions I always got when I was growing up was, what are you? Yeah. Um, there's always this pressure to belong to one side more than the other. And then as a first generation American, you also have to be culturally white passing, even if you don't, may not look like it. So all those things, they really pull at your psyche and make you wonder, who are you supposed to be? If you're only half of something, does that make you not enough? Do you have the right to tell your, your stories of your own heritage? Um, it, it was a criticism I, I got a lot with Arusha and the end of time, the fact that I was only half Indian. And now, you know, those people can just, anyway, it's not a nice question to ask, um, but it also raises a question of, you don't have to be, you don't have to constantly prove your ties to a place to claim ownership over those stories. They are a part yeah. of you. Yeah. yeah. The, Enrique says something that just, just breaks my heart. You're talking about the fact that he looks too Spanish, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And and you write, it wasn't his intellect that made him unwanted, it was his face. Yeah. Uh, and that just Poor like, baby. yeah. Um, did you, <laughs> but did you have that kind of experience where, because you said people are saying, yeah. what are you, where you were, where you felt excluded by a group that you felt like you actually were a part of? Yeah, I, that, yeah, that had happened a lot when I was growing up. Um, and it was sad because sometimes the fact that I was not distinguishable as either Filipino or Indian was, um, considered a more desirable trait. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a huge issue of colorism in Asia to be lighter skinned, to look more European. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when I 
after 13 or so, you start hearing mixed Asian girls are prettier than full Asian girls. And that kind of conversation, that to make yourself, that to otherize yourself and exoticize yourself is actually the best, the best route for you. Do you know what I, yeah. I don't yeah. know if I'm saying it quite right, but it really, it offended me. I mean, my great grandmothers are beautiful. My mother is beautiful. Um, and to say that you have to erase part of yourself to be more wanted is an, is an ugly thing. Yeah. Um, and when I was in college, I wanted to be a, I, I wanted to be a journalist and go into broadcast journalism. And I remember working really, really hard um, all summer long. And at the end of it, I was told at the end of my internship, I was told that I was ethnically ambiguous and enough, and that my voice wasn't too high pitched, and I would be great for network news. I had never been so crushed in my life. Yeah, and it. It bothered me for weeks because I, I knew I wasn't happy, but I couldn't put my finger down on what was it about it that made me so unhappy about the yeah. feedback I'd gotten. Yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> Do you think that having, having had those kinds of experiences, that writing fiction is one way to, to kind of work out your, your feelings and, oh, about that and, and the emotions that they contain? Absolutely, yeah. Um, that's the wonderful thing about writing fiction. You can abstract your problems, you can filter them through fantastical worlds and find answers to questions you didn't even know you, you were trying to ask. Yeah. I think it's, to go back to a minute, what you said a minute ago about um, you know, the, the way that people said you weren't Indian enough to write yeah. about India. I, I mean, I think this is, this is a point at which we maybe are taking our, our fascination with, and, and Importantly, our, our interest yeah. in diversity, cultural diversity, a little bit too far when we Completely say that agree. that you know, for instance, a male author shouldn't write a female protagonist, or a, a, a white female shouldn't mm -hmm. write uh, you know somebody who's from Portugal or what. Right. Yeah. And yeah. that just seems like part of what we do is we imagine we're if we only wrote about people who were exactly like ourselves, yeah, we wouldn't write very interesting books, would we? Right. Absolutely. Um, and that's where the power of relying on the voices of other people comes into play. I mean, I used a lot of sensitivity readers for The Gilded Wolves. Mm -hmm. um, I even had Indian sensitivity readers when I was writing Aru. It's not as if one ethnicity can speak for all. And I think, I completely agree with the sense that you, when you write outside your lived experience, you should, um, in the sense to reflect the inclusivity of the world around you. And to rely on sensitivity readers and beta readers and thorough research to do it uh, to write those stories without causing harm, yeah. you know, yeah. it's a it's a hard balance. I mean, you you want you want people from that background to have the opportunity to tell those stories first. Sure. But at the same time, to to say that you can only write what you are is I, I agree. It makes for sad and hollow stories. Yeah. 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 I'd like to talk a little bit about the building blocks of of a novel for a minute. The the words, the sentences. Uh, a friend of mine, I said I was going to be interviewing you, and she said, "Oh, I read I read one of her books. It was lyrical. Was oh. the word that she used to describe it." <laughs> and and I think that's true. I think your sentences have a have a lovely sound and rhythm to them. Thank you. How conscious are you of the shape of a particular sentence as you're writing, or is that something that comes naturally, or is that something that you bang out in revision? Um, it's kind of a little bit of both. I think with my first drafts, they're not beautiful at all, but <laughs> I think my natural voice does steer a little towards the violet tinged. I can't help that. Um, when I was growing up, my favorite authors were, my favorite author was Angela Carter. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I drank her books. They were so, so beautiful. Um, 
And it was those authors who played so much with prose and who still made me feel something on a really deep level that, um, that really inspired me to start writing. So, so yeah, it's, it's a mix of both. Um, I love the moment of revisions where the, the bones, the stories, you know, are, are, are fine and the emotional arcs, I've got it right. And now I can go back and really sit and linger with all of those POVs and think about what the world looks like from their perspective and, and what their voice really sounds like. Mm -hmm. I find sometimes the sentence when I'm when I'm in revising and editing mode, as I work through a manuscript, a, a particular sentence will just keep jumping yeah. out at me. And actually, the the novel I have coming out next year, that that particular sentence, I finally just said, I've got to rework this so this is the last sentence in the book because if, if it makes Wonderful. me feel this way every yeah. time I get to it, yeah, that's the feeling I want my reader to have yeah. when they close the book and and they're finished with it. That's amazing. Um, I love that. Do you ever read your work aloud to sort of to yourself to sort of hear the, the, the rhythm and I the do. sound of it? I yeah. definitely do. Um, towards the end I do. Um, also when I'm writing a lot of action scenes, I have to say them out loud or act them out, which is really unfortunate for whoever's around me. <laughs> um, I have a cat, Teddy, who is oftentimes, I'm like, all right, Teddy, you're the main character. And this cat's like, you know, you know, and I'm like, okay, now punch me. And he just sort of rolls over. I'm like, well, that's not quite right, but <laughs> we're getting there. <laughs> well, I've done that too. I'd be like, okay, he's, he's carrying books in this arm yeah. and he has to, to hit the person with this stick. And so well, how am I going to, you know, you're sort, of, <laughs> you're sort of sitting in your chair in this very odd position and someone walks in the room and you're like, no, I was just writing, I promise, I was writing. Um, Absolutely. Another, I think, contributor to the lyricism of your uh, stories is the names of the characters. Oh, thank um, you. I, and again, I, I, I think about uh, J.K. Rowling and all what she says about the way she collected names. Yeah. Do you collect names? Do you invent names? How do, what's your favorite way to come up with character names? I definitely collect names. Um, I also think that a lot of the character names have have something significant to do about their background. Um, like for example, Zofia Boguska, that's I think the maiden name of Marie Curie, who mm -hmm. studied at the University of Paris at that time. Um, Severin, I just thought was a sexy name that I took from Velvet Underground. <laughs> so, you know, like there are things like that. Um, and it's also, I mean, the lyrics for that song of uh, Venus and Furs are just like, ooh, yeah. ouch, oh no, no. Um, and he's very much an ooh, ouch, oh no character yeah, for yeah, me. Yeah. Um, but then like Layla, for example, that is not her real birth name. Like she's from South India. So Layla is a very, you know, Iranian, Middle Eastern name. But for me, it's important for her background, um, which where she took her name was from a very old poem by Nizami Ganjavi called Layla and Majnun. Mm -hmm. It's considered the, um, the precursor to Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. So I hope that doesn't give too much away. But. <laughs> Severin says, nothing was invincible but change. <laughs> is that an idea that you think needs to resonate, especially for young readers who are Absolutely. obviously going to face a world that's going to be very yeah, different from what we know? Yeah, I, you know, our worlds are chaos, and it's for better or for worse that these things can change. Um, and you know, one of the things my dad always says, and I, I know it's not particularly original, but it's, you know, you can't affect what happens to you, you can only control your reaction to it. And mm -hmm. it's, it's a reminder that I often, often need to, to feel as though the thread that I'm following through this labyrinth of existence is my own, yeah. and that's okay. Yeah. Um, what, why do you think, I don't know if you would classify this as fantasy or not, but, but why do you think fantasy, or at least altered reality, which this certainly would, would qualify as, has such a strong appeal for, for teenage readers? Um, well, I guess, you know, when I was a teen, 
and, and I still feel this way, I just want to be somewhere else. Mm -hmm. I, I want to know how someone like me would fare in a different world. Yeah. Um, and one of my favorite fantasy books that's out right now is Holly Black's The Cruel Prince, mm -hmm. um, the sequel, The Wicked King just came out this week. And it is so delicious. And that other, that fairy world that she builds with its own rules of etiquette and rules of acting is really, really fascinating. Um, and I think when you're, ex you're, you're escaping into an other world that has different rules, it can actually make you feel more in control of your own situations. Yeah. 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 This book is full of, of politics, of history, of if not magic, certainly a mythical, mystical sort of feeling. But it's also, as you alluded to at the beginning, it's a book about a heist. <laughs> um, what, what was it like to plot out something as, as basic as, I mean, not basic, but no, as, no, as no, sort no. of traditional as a yeah. heist narrative oh, in the context of this very... It was awful. Uh, <laughs> it was awful. I, I sent it to my editor and she was like, cool. Um, what? What is your logic for these scenes? I'm like, oh no, I forgot all the connecting logic, you know, like to yeah. put it on the page. Um, and it was... It was rough because there's a lot of, again, it's the negotiation of what a character knows, what they're withholding from the other characters versus what, what do I know? Um, and I know nothing. God, I was awful at math, but I really like the theory behind it. Um, so there's a lot of math in this book. I don't know how that happened. Um, like, <laughs> little things like that. That was really, really fun to figure out, but um, it required, I think, an entire, a door and a half to figure out. Door and a half. Um, but it also, this book taught me so much craft level wise about foreshadowing, mm -hmm. um, and not just foreshadow for emotional stuff, but where am I planting the seed for a realization that needs to come later? Yeah. You can nod towards it at the beginning, but it has to be there just enough times for someone to remember. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, um, I'm trying to think how to put this, uh, the idea of a heist becomes a little more twisted, perhaps complicated, mm -hmm. when the security systems, for instance, are yeah. are this different world right. type of, you know, the forging and all yeah. these other things. So you're yeah. not, it's not like Ocean's Eleven. There's, all, there's a whole different set of, yeah. of obstacles that the, the um, protagonists are trying to overcome. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, heists are, they're basic. Go in, get out, get the thing, you know, that's it. Yeah. The beauty and the beauty of it is where things go wrong. Um, so that was definitely really fun, but this is to me less of a go and get out, get stuff, and, and that treasure hunty, unfolding mystery, blah, blah, hopefully. <laughs> so you mentioned before that the novel set at the time of the 1889 Exposition Universale in Paris, which mm -hmm. was the time that the Eiffel Tower was built, mm -hmm. I, obviously one of the most iconic structures in, in Europe or in the world. Mm -hmm. Do you see the tower itself as emblematic of this intersection of, of science and not exactly magic, but the kind of magic that comes from artistic endeavor. Absolutely. Um, and I think it's also representative of how we feel about things over time. Mm -hmm. People hated that tower. They're like, yeah. what the hell is this? You've completely destroyed our, our skyline. It's ugly. I'm sorry this person is so insecure about themselves. You know, like that kind yeah, of thing. That yeah, was always yeah. the running joke about the Eiffel Tower. Um, and now you can't imagine Paris without it. Yeah. yeah. I think that's fascinating how many places we have the temporary structure because yes. the Eiffel Tower was supposed to just be there for the yeah. exhibition then it was going to come down. Yeah. Same with the London Eye, which yeah. is now sort of the iconic, yeah. at least modern, uh, 
visual for yes, London absolutely. was supposed to be up for like five years. Yeah, uh, at I, the I time think of Chicago London, so. had one too, and they took it down. Um, I can't remember what it was though. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's amazing how, and I think that does get at the idea of accepting change. Mm -hmm. um, that the thing that we think is is awful and that we hope is temporary might become the thing that we love and we hope yes. lasts forever. Yes, uh, absolutely. I mean. One of those wonderful Southern, I don't know if it's just Southern, but I always feel like I hear it more in the South, is you know, the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Yeah. And you see that so much throughout history. And 1889, or at around that time, was actually when Fritz Haber had started coming up with this fertilizer that changed how we were able to provide food mm -hmm. to people. Otherwise, so many people would have gone to starvation. Um, and Fritz Haber was also the, the mind behind Zyklon B, which was used in gas chambers. Yeah, yeah. So that, that idea of an invention being good and then switched to become something terrible, yeah. we, we never quite know. Yeah. So I'm going to go slightly personal for Let's a minute because my daughter actually is a wedding planner in Atlanta <gasps> oh my gosh. where you live and where you're planning a wedding. And she's no planned way. a lot of multicultural weddings. Oh, so that's I, so cool. So I have this this vague inkling of what you're going through planning a wedding that has multiple Asian traditions mm -hmm. in it. Um, first of all, congratulations. Thank you. You're planning such a wedding Thank coming you. up soon. But also, can you compare that process to the process of writing a book that also draws on different <laughs> cultural influences? I mean, did you ever like think, which, which world am I in today? Uh, um, absolutely. Wedding planning, uh, gosh, hats off to your daughter. I, I, I feel like I'm the most ridiculous bride ever. <laughs> I'm just, you, everything, I'm like, I don't know anything, and I'm scared, and, and I want to look pretty. Am I pretty? And like, I'm like, this, like, the whole terrible cycle, and we just on invitations, and everything is a mess. Oh, I love my wedding planner. Um, I definitely feel like it's, it's being whiplashed between different worlds, and when you have that, when, you're, when you have all those different cultural influences, it, it makes you think about your reader, your audience for a yeah, wedding, yeah. Um, or for your books. And I think, you know, at this point, my fiance and I are just, we're not shooting for like equal happiness. We just want everyone to be equally disappointed. Um, <laughs> but that's not how I feel with the book. I hope people aren't equally disappointed, but, but rather equally happy. Um, but the cool thing about both, and I think that the thing that they share is a celebration of your, your favorite things. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the Gilded Wolves has everything I love, and I hope my wedding has everything I love. It has a guy I love, so that's good enough. <laughs> so. Well, it gives you the opportunity to write your own story in the same way that you're Absolutely. writing the story. Yeah, yeah. We've had a really fun time, um, fun and harrowing time with making the ceremony something that is reflective of both of us yeah. and honors yeah. both sides of our family. So, yeah, we're That's excited. Great. We like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer each of them in just a few words. Oh, no. But hopefully they'll give us all something to think about and Great. give our listeners a little bit of uh, insight into you. So if you're ready, let's do it. We will begin. Okay. okay. What word do you love to work into your writing? Ooh, Ophidian. <laughs> what word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? M-O-I-S-T. I won't say it. I don't like it. I don't think you're the first person to choose that word. That's interesting. It's just ugly sounding. Yeah. yeah. Where's your favorite place to write? In my office with my cat next to me. <laughs> Where could you never write? In the car. <laughs> <laughs> to what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? Split infinitives. <laughs> what was the first book you remember reading? Oh, I guess the first one that really stuck with me, it's between The Iron Ring by Lloyd Alexander mm -hmm. or Ella Enchanted by Gail Carson Levine. What are you reading now? 
Oh, right now I'm in the middle of The Witch Elm by Tana French. Mm -hmm. um, I'm on a romance binge, having just recently discovered Colleen Hoover. <laughs> and last, uh, I think it's a 13th century treatise, treatise by Ibn Sa'i about the consorts of the caliphs during medieval Baghdad. Yeah. I like books. <laughs> what book would you like to have written? Oh, Deathless by Catherine Valenti. What sort of book would you like to write but probably never will? Mm. Mm. <laughs> oh no, some Shakespearean retelling maybe. I don't think I'm clever enough to really, to really get it right or I'll be too clever and get in my own way. So, like, <laughs> and finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? That they forgot where they were while they were reading the book. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and the podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. My guest today has been Roshni Chaksi, whose new novel, The Gilded Wolves, was launched right here at Bookmarks on January 15th. It's available wherever books are sold, and of course, you can buy signed copies at Bookmarks. During the winter months, Inside the Writer's Studio will post new episodes on the 15th and final day of each month. On our next episode, I'll be talking to first-time novelist Will Medeiros about his New York novel, Restoration Heights. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion.